Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. Perhaps you'd like to follow in your Bibles. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for memorial of her. Good morning, saints. Happy Sabbath. It's a very special privilege for me to worship with you today. Uh, my name is uh, Jeff Wilson. I uh, direct the Plan Giving and Trust Services Department at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. I've been doing that for about 10 years, and it's hard for me to uh, calculate it all up, but I've actually been in... Uh, in the ministry for 42 years. I know I don't look that old at all. <clears throat> the years do go by quite quickly, I've discovered, especially when you get over the hill and you're sort of sliding down the other side. It really gets pretty fast. Thank you so much, Tanya and Virginia, for setting uh, the beautiful setting for what I'd like to share with you this morning. I was going to share a PowerPoint on the pumpkin lady. I think I'll wait and share that at, at Fellowship Meal today. It's an exciting story of a woman who raises pumpkins and builds churches in India. It's an exciting story. If you come to Fellowship Meal, I'll share that. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we are people of Bible prophecy. You know that. Uh, of all the doctrines that Seventh-day Adventists uh, teach in uh, our sub-school lesson today, talked about four or five of those S's that are so precious to all of us. But prophecy, and especially the, the longest time prophecy of, of Scripture, Daniel 8, 14, 2300 year prophecy, is a unique contribution that we as Seventh-day Adventists give to the Christian world. Uh, it, our evangelists often talk about prophecy, and some who might think that's old hat, uh, Folks, it's never been more appropriate than right now. We are living in the most difficult times, uh, and they're going to get worse. I'm not a prophet, but my prediction is, just following what about everybody else is saying, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And maybe it get worse enough, it'll be the end of the world. That would be great, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, a, a wonderful evangelist, Elder H.M.S. Richards Sr., just down the road here a little ways, in the heart of the last depression, began a little radio program. You remember that. It was called The Voice of Prophecy, and it's still on today. 
So I thought it might be interesting for us as Seventh-day Adventists, who are people of Bible prophecy, to fulfill a Bible prophecy here in uh, the Santa uh, Clarita Church on Sabbath, March 7, 2009. Wouldn't that be neat to fulfill a Bible prophecy right here in church? Well, Virginia read it for us a few moments ago. I'd like to look at this beautiful story of Mary Magdalene anointing the head and feet of Jesus. And as she read, uh, there was, uh, when Mary did this beautiful act of love and compassion for her Savior, the disciples were indignant. They were very upset about this. And uh, we'll get into that in a few moments. But Jesus immediately stood up for her. The Lord is always standing up for sinners. Aren't you glad for that? One time they complained that the Lord wasn't, was always fellowshipping with sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, and they thought this was terrible for Jesus to do. And he said, well, where do doctors go? To well people or to sick people? Well, I'm glad that the Lord uh, likes to help sinners get over their sin. And in this case, he stood between the accusers. I think he'd done that before for this lady. And the accused. And he said, why are you bothering this woman? Verse 10 of Matthew 26. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you'll not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus had been trying to prepare his disciples for a long time that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer many things, he was going to die, and three days later he would rise from the dead. And Peter said, don't talk about that anymore, Lord. And everybody sort of put it out of their minds. Nobody really believed it except Mary. And that was the motivation for this beautiful gift that she gave to the Lord. And so the Lord understood it. He said, she, she poured this perfume on my body to prepare me for burial. And here's, here's the prophecy we're fulfilling this morning. Verse 13. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, even in Santa Clarita, California, March 7, 2009, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't that neat? We just fulfilled a Bible prophecy, not by Daniel, not by Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the other great prophets, but the greatest prophet of all, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's really intriguing and sort of ironic that when Mary, led by the Holy Spirit to do this beautiful act of love for her Savior, hoped nobody would know about it except the Lord. She tried to do this quietly and, and, and slipping around so that nobody else would know. Well, and yet everybody knows. As I have studied uh, the uh, Gospels, I see only two events before Passion Week that are recorded in all four Gospels. And it's very interesting what two things that is. You know, by the way, the, the uh, birth of Jesus is only recorded in two of the four Gospels. Uh, two Gospels, Mark and John, didn't even worry with that. They went to other things. The feeding of the 5,000 which is another wonderful uh, sermon, and Mary's marvelous gift. 
The only two before Passion Week and Passion Week. This event is found in all four Gospels, and some Gospels is a little different place than others, but here it's about six days before Passover. So it's, it's preparing for that Via Della Rosa, but not quite there. So I'm going to look at it this morning from Matthew 26, 6 to 13, that Virginia read a few moments ago. I'm reading from the New International Version. But if you prefer, you can go over to Mark 13, 3 to 11, Luke 7, 36 to 50, or John 12, 1 to 11, and you'll find essentially the same story. Now, different Gospels vary in some of the details. Mark says she poured the oil on his head. Luke informs us that the woman was a sinner, quote, unquote and that Simon, the host of the meal, uh, judged her in his heart. And because of that, Jesus told that interesting parable of two debtors, one who owed a lot and one who owed a little, and got Simon to give him the answer, who would love the one who forgave the debts more? Well, obviously the one who had the larger debt. And John, written near the end of the first century, names the woman. The other gospel writers don't name her, but they name her as Mary, and there are a number of Marys in the New Testament. It's sometimes hard to keep them all straight, but there is this Mary Magdalene, the sister of Lazarus. Simon's name is omitted in the Gospel of John. And in John, the the man who began the criticism is mentioned. That was Judas. The first time in Scripture that we have this disciple identified in person, and he's criticizing an act of love for the master. Isn't that interesting? And by the way, it, it also says that he went from that to, to condemn his Lord. Uh, there, so there was this feast in, the, in this town in Bethany. Verse 6, Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. In fact, it was Simon who was the host for the occasion. It's very interesting that Ellen White tells us that Simon did not believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. However, Simon had been healed from the most horrible, incurable diseases of that time, leprosy. By the way, this is strange. Somebody help me with this. The Bible tells us that Jesus went to a feast in the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper. There were lots of Simons, but this is a Simon that's the leper. This is very strange. As you know, in ancient times, uh, leprosy was uh, much more... Uh, prevalent than it is today. Unfortunately, today it's uh, becoming more and more prevalent, especially in the third world again. There are between one and two million people suffering from leprosy around the world. We used to have one hospital down in uh, Louisiana. I'm not sure we even have that hospital anymore where Dr. Paul Bland used to practice uh, for lepers in the United States. But leprosy is this chronic infectious disease caused by microbacterium leprae, an acid fast, rod-shaped bacillus. It deforms. People's fingers begin to fall off. Their nose deteriorates. Their feet 
come so that they become crippled. Their eyelids deteriorate, and pretty soon they become blind. And it was believed at that time that if you touched a leper, uh, you would get the leprosy. It was that contagious. Dr. Bland has, in recent years, proved that that's not true, but in, in those days they believed that. And so what would happen, of course, as you know from Scripture... If you saw some white blotches on your skin, you would become very afraid and you would hurry to the public health officer who happened to be the priest. And you would, as you went there, I'm sure you would be praying all the way and you would be holding your breath as the, the uh, priest would <coughs> excuse me, examine your body. And he said, oh, it's just, it's just some rash. Oh, you'd breathe a sigh of relief. But if he said those horrible words, this is leprosy, then by law <clears throat> you were required to leave your family, leave your job, leave your loved ones, leave society, go out and live in the garbage dump with fellow lepers for the rest of your natural life as your body wasted away. It was a disease that was called a living death. Your body wasted away. Oh, something like cancer, some of the things that we have today, but worse. So how on earth a man uh, with leprosy could have a banquet in his home in the city of Bethany? Well, of course, the answer is that Simon was a healed leper. The Lord had taken away his leprosy. The Lord had touched his body, and he had become a new man on the outside. Not on the inside. It's interesting that, I, I didn't realize this for before, but there are some people that Jesus healed in the Bible, and then later, remember, he said, now go and sin no more. So healing was not reserved only for those who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. That's quite interesting. The Bible, uh, Ellen White says very clearly in that chapter, I think it's chapter 39 of uh, chapter 62 of Desire of Ages, Feast at Simon's House, that he had not accepted Jesus as the Savior, but he had been healed. And in gratitude for what Jesus had done for him, Simon prepared a feast. He hosted the feast. He hired the best caterer in all of Bethany. Her name was Martha. And he invited Jesus to come and be the guest of honor. And of course, as the host, he would sit on one side of the guest of honor, Jesus. And on the other side of Jesus was another man that everyone Everybody wanted to be invited to this feast because on the other side of Jesus sat another very interesting man, Mary and Martha's brother, uh, Lazarus. Wouldn't that have been neat to be at that banquet? Here is Jesus in the place of honor. On one side is Simon, a high-level Jewish religious man. I don't have time to go into the sinful part of his life. That's a whole other sermon. 
But here was a man, maybe 40, 50, 60 years of age, but with the skin of a baby. You know, no pimples, no scars, no wrinkles. The Lord had healed him of his leprosy. Maybe he had lost fingers and nose and ears, but it was all restored. Here was an older man, no age spots, and it wasn't makeup. It was the Lord had given him the skin of a baby. Everybody wanted to come and see the man who had been saved from a living death. But on the other side of Jesus was another witness that Jesus was the Messiah of the world. It was Lazarus. A few days before, Lazarus had been in the grave. There was in the county courthouse records a death certificate signed for this gentleman. He had been duly embalmed. The funeral service had had been finished. They had laid him in the grave and sealed the stone. His obituary had been written up in the newspaper. There was no question in anyone's mind uh, that Lazarus had died. And he, he was a loss. The sisters still were, were grieving his loss. I'm sure many other people who loved him. And, and, and by the way, At the tomb of Lazarus is where we see this wonderful shortest verse of scripture. Isn't it true? Jesus wept. There's a whole sermon right there too. Jesus had wept over his friend Lazarus who was dead. But Jesus had said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus had come out of the grave. It was an interesting story because, you know, first Jesus said to Martha, have, someone, have, have those big burly men roll the stone back. The Lord likes us to be involved in his work too, doesn't he? And Martha said, oh Lord, this, the stench, he's been dead four days. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, have faith, roll the stone back. And here comes, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Somebody said, if he hadn't said Lazarus, all the graves everywhere would have opened up. And here comes Lazarus trying to hobble out of the tomb because he's still all wrapped up like a mummy. And Jesus says, you know, to some people, don't stand there with your mouths open. Unloose this man. Let him go. You know what the Bible says? At the word of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. That's Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Jesus reiterated it in Matthew 18, verse 16. And in our court system today, you need more than one witness to convict someone of a crime. Isn't it true? And it's based on Scripture. Two or three witnesses must be come forward and have valid testimony to establish that a crime or an event, whatever, has happened. Here you have two witnesses. Simon the leper and Lazarus, the resurrection man. By their simply sitting at the banquet on either side of Jesus were incontrovertible controvertible arguments that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah of the world. It's strange that some of the Jewish leaders went around saying, how can we kill Lazarus again, you know? We've got to get rid of this witness that is so that we can't argue against. Well, everything was going well at the banquet. Martha's food was wonderful as usual. 
uh, people were so amazed to talk to Lazarus about what it was like to have come back out of the garbage dump and be part of society again. The Holy Spirit was working on his heart because there was some unconfessed sin there. Terrible sin. But he was changed on the outside. And then to talk to Lazarus, and I'm sure some people, not understanding the state of the dead like we do, said, well, Lazarus, what was it like in heaven? Isn't it kind of disappointing to come back down to earth? And Lazarus would say, well, it's what the Lord said to you before I came out of the grave. He said, you were asleep, right? John 11. All I know is I was asleep. It was like one moment. The four days were like a moment. And I heard Jesus' voice calling me forth. Meanwhile, Lazarus's sister, Mary Magdalene, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, was led to do something very beautiful. She was led to purchase a, an alabaster jar of perfume. The Bible tells us that this perfume was very, very expensive. And yet, and, and, and if we convert the denarii into our dollars today, we indeed find that it was a lot of money. In fact, it was equivalent to one year's wages. About 300 denarii. Very expensive. In fact, <clears throat> this perfume uh, actually comes uh, spikenard <clears throat> or nard comes from a, a jasmanza plant that grows way up high in the Himalaya mountains. And so it would have been very, very expensive. You know, it's equivalent to a year's wages. So if your wages are $25,000 a year, that's what it costs. If, it's, if your wages are fifty dollars or $60,000 a year, that's what that one bottle of perfume cost. Now, it was made, the bottle was not a glass bottle like ours today. I have a picture here, and I should put it up, put it up on the screen, but it, it's a light, translucent rock that was carved into a flask to hold this expensive perfume. Now, it didn't have a lid on it, as I understand it, that you would screw back on. You know, sometimes we gentlemen uh, buy a bottle of perfume for our wives, and maybe we spend a little more than, than we should, but we say, well, she can use it for a year, you know. Well, this, you actually broke the little uh, lip to the, to the box, to the, to the jar. So it was a one-time-use-only perfume. Now, I can see um, Mary going to a very wealthy part of town, you know, the very fanciest mall, and, you know, the, the clerk there where you have a shopper's, what do they call it, a shopper's assistant or something that helps you with your purchasing, and they said, I'm sorry, lady, this place is not for you. This is where kings and queens and the wealthy people come to make purchases, and then she shows them this huge wad of money. Well, come right on in. We can help you here for sure. See, there's a, there's a number of lessons in what Mary did. One was that she saved her money. That's a strange thing for Americans today. That's exactly, not exactly, but it's one of the major reasons why we're in trouble financially in the United States of America today, is debt. 
president said it right in his uh, State of Union, in his inaugural address, he called it greed, and it is greed. But there's debt, there's huge debt, the mortgage debt, the credit card debt, and other kinds of debt. Mary put a little aside from time to time. Earnings from her occupation, which <clears throat> some of us feel was not the best occupation. You know, Ellen White had a little sock behind the door, and she put money in there from time to time, so that when there was a need in God's work, she had a place where she could take some money out and invest it in God's work. Mary, impressed by the Holy Spirit, took that money, went to the marketplace, and purchased this expensive, expensive perfume. She didn't know the full significance of her deed of love, Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 560. She could not answer her accusers. She could not explain why she had chosen that occasion for anointing Jesus. The Holy Spirit had planned for her, and she had obeyed his promptings. Inspiration stoops to give no answer, an unseen presence it speaks to mind and soul and moves the heart to action. It is its own justification. Mark 16.9 tells us that this Mary is the one from whom the Lord had cast seven demons. And the Greek word there, the tense of the Greek word seems to say kept on casting out seven demons. Demons. In other words, it wasn't one time the Lord cast seven demons out of Mary. Mary had been, many of us believe that Mary had been led into a life of prostitution by the same man, Simon, who had taken advantage of this young girl at an early age, lost her uh, self confidence, lost her self esteem, and had gotten involved in the red light district. The Lord had found Mary. Probably Lazarus and Martha were praying for her, and they said, Lord, please, she's down in this place in Magdala. And the Lord had gone out of his way to go down there to find Mary, to encourage her and to, to lead her to repentance and to forgive her of her sin. But then Mary had gotten fallen back again. And that had happened seven times. Now, What's the significance of the number seven in scripture? It's a perfect number, isn't it? It means perfection, it means completeness, doesn't it? How do you improve on the seventh day Sabbath? You can't. So you flip that coin over and you have a seven times sinner. You have a, the worst of all sinners, in a sense, isn't it? This is a person that everybody had written off. Leave her to her sin. She's Fallen back in the same old thing. Sometimes people talk about, you know, an alcoholic like that. The Lord doesn't give up on us, though. But sometimes we give up on each other, unfortunately. Finally, the seventh time Mary had opened her heart wide and let the Lord come into her heart completely. And she became a new person. And so when the Holy Spirit said to Mary, Mary... Your Lord and Savior is going to die in a few days. You need to anoint him now. She wanted the very best 
for the one who had given his all for her. It wasn't a tithe. It wasn't tithe and offerings. It was everything that Mary gave. But Mary would never have characterized it as a sacrifice. She would never have second-guessed what the Holy Spirit led her to do. She certainly never would have called it a waste, as Judas did. You see, when Judas cast this criticism, he was not so much leveling it at Mary Magdalene as he was leveling it at the Lord for allowing her to do this. Isn't that amazing? Mary slipped in, uninvited, purposely not invited to this feast. How could Simon invite the one that his conscience was still bothering him about what he had done to her? But she was led by the Holy Spirit to go. And so, as you know, they reclined. I don't know how they ate that way, but they reclined on their left elbow and, and their feet were out behind them. And she could sneak into the room unobtrusively, hoping nobody would see. She knew what she had to do. She wanted only the Lord to know what she, know what she was going to do. Annoy his feet and slip out again, and nobody would know but Jesus. But she forgot one thing. It was expensive perfume. And the perfume filled the whole room. And everybody said, what is that? And Mary was found out. And immediately... Um, Judas began his criticism. Mary came in. She, here was her master, and she could not hold back the tears. And actually, it was her tears that first washed the feet of Jesus. She let down her hair, which is not something in that time and age that a woman should do in public. She let down her hair to dry his feet. And then two of the Gospels say she anointed his head, and two of the Gospels say she anointed his feet, and critics say, aha, this proves the Bible is wrong. No, it just proves that different witnesses see different things. She anointed Jesus', Jesus head. you remember any occasions in the Old Testament where somebody's head was anointed with oil? Yes, Saul, David, other kings. You anointed a king with oil on his head as the head of of uh, your country as your king. Mary anointed Jesus' head, recognizing, acknowledging Jesus as her king. She also washed his feet. Jesus said to Simon, I came as your guest and you didn't even have a servant wash my feet. What a snub. For the man who had healed him of leprosy. It wasn't that just Simon, Simon should have done it himself, but he didn't even have a servant to do it. But Jesus said, this woman has not stopped washing my feet with her tears and with drying them with her hair. Because she was a sinner who was forgiven. Simon didn't do it because he was a sinner who hadn't been forgiven yet. You'd think he would have been grateful just enough to be healed by, uh, from his leprosy. So Mary was found out, but Jesus stood up immediately and defended her. Well, was Judas right or was Judas wrong? Was this a waste? Well, you know, he said this could have been sold for this great sum, a year's wages, and given to the poor. How can you argue against that? 
It's not wrong to help the poor. Jesus said, prophetically, the poor you'll always have with you, right? Even in 2009, we've got more poor people now than ever because, as you heard last week, you know, unemployment, 8.1, highest uh, for at least 25 years. The, The poor you'll always have with you, you will not always have me with you. Was it a waste? Let me suggest to you what I think happened, and uh, this isn't scripture, I can't prove this, but I like it. A few days later, a few hours later maybe, Jesus hung on the cross. The stench of blood, sweat, and tears, people dying, was all around him. Added to it was the cursing and swearing of the thieves and of the crowd and of everyone. Satan first thought, aha, I've got him right where I want him. I'm going to kill the Son of God and then I will be ruler of the world. At last, I'm in control. I will be the king. And then somehow in Satan's clouded mind, he realized that he had just been checkmated. When Jesus dies, Jesus himself said, when I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven, when Jesus died, it was over. It was curtains for Satan. You see, it wasn't just this world we're looking on as we know. It was the whole universe, wasn't it? And all the other universes were saying, all the other worlds saying, you know, Satan said he had a better plan Satan said that God was selfish. And they saw God dying on the cross for one little itsy-bitsy speck of a world. And every planet out there said, we're 100% now on God's side. Satan realized that if if Jesus died, he was done for. And so, through the voice of the rabble around the cross, they began this, this chant, if you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. Remember? If you're the Son of God, come down. Look around you. All your disciples have forsaken you and fled. Why, it would make sense to die for one or two persons. But who are you dying for? You're throwing your life away. They've all forsaken you and fled. You're dying for nothing. Come down off of the cross. Do you think it was a temptation for Jesus? It wouldn't have been a temptation for me or either of the thieves, because there was no way physically they could come down off the cross, right? Jesus could have. I like what my friend uh, Clifford Goldstein says. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was God's love for us that held him on the cross. The nails connect heaven and earth in a way that has never happened before or since. Come down off the cross. Why throw your life away? Well, in my imagination, I think of this scenario. In the stench, the blood, sweat, and tears, suddenly a whiff of beautiful, expensive perfume caught Jesus' attention. You know, uh, 10 years ago, I went to Africa for the first time. 
And everywhere I was in Africa, it, remind, it took me back 40 years to when I was a kid, because when I was a kid, we used to burn our garbage in the backyard. You know what I'm saying? Today, the fire people will come and give you a fine if you burn even some leaves in your backyard. The smell of burning uh, garbage reminded me of my childhood 40 years before. You ever catch a whiff of perfume or something and it reminds you of something years and years before? In my mind, you know, I know Jesus had a lot more hair on his head than I do because I saw it in Uncle Arthur's bedtime story book, so I know it's true. But here was that perfume in Jesus' hair, and he caught a whiff of that perfume, and he said, Aha, I know one person who has accepted my sacrifice. I will go through the cross for her. Ellen White says, We know that Jesus would have died for one. The Savior would have passed through the agony of Calvary that one might be saved in his kingdom. He will never abandon one for whom he has died. Unless his followers choose to leave him, he will hold them fast. That's Desire of Ages, page 480. So I think that somehow, when Jesus caught that whiff of perfume, he remembered Mary's marvelous gift. And he was determined to grow through the cross for one person. Now that one person could have been you, right? Could have been me. You know, I've thought a lot about that wonderful banquet table in heaven, and I hope there's some kind of like rotating chairs because there's a whole lot of people I'd like to sit next to and talk to, wouldn't you? Peter and John and James and all these different people, Ruth. and I'd like to talk to Mary Magdalene. I'd like to thank her personally for taking a year's wages and providing a gift for Jesus. You know... What happened a few days later is, and I realize this, i just reading this again. Mary was with the other women who came to anoint Jesus' body on Sunday morning. Remember that? They went out on Friday afternoon, but it's too close to Sabbath. And uh, <clears throat> Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they went to Pilate and they said, Look, we're not asking, we're demanding. We want this man's body, right? And Pilate dared not. Uh, not, uh, not uh, acquiesce to their request. And they prepared his body, and the women came back to finish it up on Sunday morning, but it was too late, praise God, right? And Mary was with them on Sunday. But, but you know from Scripture, Mary is the very first one that Jesus appeared to on Sunday. It was Mary who told the disciples he's arisen from the grave. I think there's significance in that. Someday in the, up in heaven, I think we're all going to thank Mary. And she's not, not for her sacrifice, but for her marvelous love gift to our Savior that encouraged his heart at just the moment that he needed it. You know, it's a lesson for us today. We come to a funeral, and there's lots of beautiful flowers and kind words said about the deceased. Ellen White says, let's do that for people before they die. Right? Let's, incur, let's tell them what, what they have meant in our lives before when they can still hear it and appreciate it uh, for themselves and for, the, for others. How do we react when there are calls for gifts to God's work today? Like Mary or like Judas? Three of the four Gospels connect Judas's 
betrayal of Jesus with this experience. Mary took a whole year's wages and bought a one-time gift for Jesus. Judas went out and sold his master for the price of a common slave, 30 pieces of silver, a whole lot smaller amount of money. You see how much Judas valued his master, don't you? On the level of a slave. Well, Ellen White says, Kingdoms will rise and fall. The names of monarchs and conquerors will be forgotten. But this woman's deed will be immortalized upon the pages of sacred history. And it's in all four Gospels. Until time shall be no more, that broken alabaster box will tell the story of the abundant love of God for a fallen race. That's the Desire of Ages 563. Mary Magdalene did not forget her master. May that be the experience of each one of us. Praise God for his marvelous gift for us. Amen.